Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. We are continuing our study in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Up to this point in chapter 2, the emphasis was on how we are to be kind to one another, the words that we speak, even as we teach theology and doctrine and even as we talk about things that we may uh, disagree It's the attitude of Christ that has counted. Now, in chapter 3, he is contrasting that with culture. He's contrasting that with the very human nature that indwells all of us. And this, uh, this sermon today, this message today, is really setting up the next two messages that uh, Adam is going to be uh, speaking. Uh, You might ask, where are we going? We are going to be helping Brittany to move uh, on one Sunday, and then we are going to be visiting our son um, as he uh, plays his games with Ultimate Frisbee. Um, But the next two sermons is about how difficult it is sometimes to live a godly life and then the, one of the best-known verses in the Bible is that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it has its benefits, and it's profitable for this, 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 and this. So today is like an introduction to how do we combat, uh, combat our, the influence of our culture upon the church. So that is the context. Um, If you have studied Greek history, philosophy, and uh, mythology, uh, have you ever wondered if the Greeks really did believe in those gods? Um, Well, Socrates was sentenced to death because he didn't, or he acted like he didn't. And uh, psychologists today tell us that really those gods of the Greek pantheons really are uh, personifications or deifications of our human nature, that is, the certain things that we can see in our lives. And narcissist is probably the most prevalent. Uh, the way the Greek mythology goes, and we, I think we may have talked about this uh, earlier uh, la- uh, this year, that was a, uh, he was a hunter, uh, he was a very beautiful man, many people fell in love with him, But he only showed them contempt. One day, Echo fell in love with him, and he cast her aside until finally she just went into the woods where she just became a mere Echo. Well, Nemesis, the god goddess of revenge, decided to punish Narcissus um, for his behavior. So she led him to a pool. There he saw his reflection in the water, He fell in love with it. And although he didn't realize it at the beginning, it was just a reflection. So he fell into despair because the thing that he loved most was never going to be able to satisfy him. And so he ended his life. If there were ever a character trait or disposition that we see in the pantheon of gods that depict human nature, it is narcissism. Self-centeredness, love of self, seems to be the most major characteristic that we see in our culture today. 
So, having said that as an introduction, now we're going to see what Paul told Timothy about this human nature of ours. So let's stand as I read this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they, have, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. And you may be seated. Look, we all know that self-seeking is nothing new. No one is exempt from its power. It's tempting because it's part of our nature. It not only shows up, though, with those who are boastful and overtly Boisterous, but even those who appear to be self-loathing how do I want to say this? They feel so badly about themselves that all they can do is think about themselves. And it's a sad state of affairs. We have seen a significant transition taking place in our culture. On the news, we see some of these very characteristics on television. For 2,000 years, culture has always tried to affect the church. But here's what I want to do. I want to ask these questions. How do these things influence us as a church? How do they impact the way we live and the way we connect with our culture? Are we seeing an impact of the culture on the church? Is it causing churches to change its methods and the message so that they are no longer offensive to the me-centered society? Now, look, we're often blind to our own faults. It is dangerous in our culture to be self-centered. It's even more dangerous for those within the church to be self-centered. But it's most dangerous to those who are in the ministry and leaders to be self-centered. Centered. We have witnessed dozens of pastors and religious leaders go down because of moral 
arrogance and pride, whether doctrinally or in actual moral issues. We want to be a place where our mind and our heart and our soul is constantly stayed on Jesus. That's what many of us want. But we find it difficult. Jesus called us to be salt and light in a dark and broken world. Yet it seems to me that this dark and broken world is having more of an effect on our churches than our churches are having on our culture. Jesus said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life shall lose it. And whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. See, the very fundamental requirement for repentance and faith toward Christ is that we turn from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. And yet, it is one of the most difficult things to do because it's part of our nature. Self-denial consists of a voluntary renunciation of anything that is inconsistent with God's glory and Christ's character. During our children's moments, we talked about pride, and we use proud in a very positive and affirming way, but God warns us that it can be destructive because we like it so much. What did Paul say as a minister? In Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This is the mind and the attitude that is supposed to be in the church and among God's people. This should be at the center of our preaching and our teaching. The cross is and should always be the only thing that we can truly boast in because it is the cross of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross that has delivered us from things that we cannot deliver ourselves. God forbid that your ministers or us as a congregation should take pride in the size of our church or the popularity of our church. There are those within Protestant Christianity who believe that the church has not been relevant to the world or to the culture. And so they need, they see the need of preaching about the offensive cross as the only hope for salvation and transformation of who we are as unnecessary. 
I believe that many of these leaders are sincere in wanting to reach this generation, but I am afraid that they're not just changing the way that they do church, but they're changing the message itself. We've all heard this saying. See if you can end it for me. The end justifies the means. That's a slippery slope. Because the means determines the end. You see, how we go about something has unintended consequences. And even with the best intentions, we go astray. For instance, um, Russ, I can't remember. I'm talking to Russ Hughes, the elder. What was the year? Uh, 1954 million more? Was that it? Okay. Many of us weren't born in 1954, but that was the goal of Southern Baptist. A million more in 54. Worthy goal. But something happened during that time. The goal became more important than the message. So I'm not just talking about today's culture. Every generation has had to face the influence of culture on its message. The end number of baptisms drove the sincere churches to water down the gospel to four easy steps to lead people to a prayer. Generations have prayed that prayer. But the lordship of Christ was not preached or taught. Jesus became a fire escape from hell. You might ask, how did the church come up with this driving goal for more baptisms? Well, we had all kinds of scripture, but here's what happened. The church took on the mindset of corporate America where we judge our success by the bottom line of numbers. In verse 1, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Understand the context in which you're living. We need to know and understand our culture, and we need to know and understand how the culture challenges us as a church as we do church. Back in the 40s and the 50s, we never thought our nation would become a secularized culture or that our country would not honor the Judeo-Christian God or his values. But here we are. For generations, we did not discern the signs of the times. In other words, we didn't care about culture of what was going on, what was being taught, what's going on in Washington. What's going on in our education system? What's going on in the media? 
We thought somehow we could segregate ourselves from those things. Now, don't get caught up on the last days. He's not talking about just before Jesus comes. The last days is a term in the New Testament, and Jesus used it from the time of his ascension to the time that he comes back. So there's no time period on it. It's just this is the time. He has gone to heaven and he's coming back. These are the last days. And so when we get to, to verse 2, we see what culture is like because it is a personification of our nature. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having appearance of godliness but denying its power. We could put all these under one category, and that's narcissism. Because it's all about us. And we could probably divide it under two subcategories. One is relativism, is what we see that's being taught. That's a form of narcissism. And then consumerism. And we love the consumer issue. That's the reason we're against the tariffs. We want cheap things for us. But we love ourselves and we love to buy things for ourselves. And we live in a society that thinks that the way we make decisions is by how we feel about things. And we don't think about the implications when we act out those feelings. So many today are unhappy while they are making decisions to feed their unhappiness, they're choosing destructive things. And many... And this is sad. Come to the conclusion of narcissists. They try so many things that are unfulfilling that they say they can't take it anymore. That's the society in which we live. We should not be shocked on what we see on the news. It's being fostered in our schools, universities, and on media. We see people who are lovers of selves, prideful and arrogant. They think that they know it all and that they're better than anyone else. They're brutal. They're abusive. They intimidate They're ungrateful for what they have. They're unappeasable in the sense that they will listen to no one who has a difference of opinion. And they're slanderous in that they will say anything about those who have an opposing view. They call good evil and evil good. They love their pleasure. And they deny their God. There is a moral superiority that goes along with this. Now, how do we combat that? Well, that's what the next two Sundays should be about. Adam, you're taking notes, I'm sure. 
You hear week after week that we seek to be a Christ-centered, family-equipping church with a heart for missions. The key not to become like your culture is to be Christ-centered in what we teach, in what we preach, in what we live out in our lives. We become what we focus on. I'm not telling you these things because I'm proud that we seek these things. I'm telling you these things because it's necessary for us to know how to combat the influence of culture. We believe the biblical understanding of Christ will change and transform individuals, families, communities, and even the nation. We don't teach self-help courses. The more time we spend on trying to figure out how to be better, And changed the less time we spend on talking about Christ who changes us for the better. And when a church becomes me-centered, it undermines the very purpose of the cross. It doesn't mean to, but it does. Because the focus is on self. Relativism is the denial of absolute truth. I read this quote. A church may not advertise it, but this is a place where the church, where the Bible is not the final rule of faith and life. We value the opinions of the people who make up this congregation. They will not advertise it, but they believe it. And it's all in the name of love because the Bible is so unloving. Today, our culture believes that it is sovereign and God is not, that its moral standards are sovereign and God's standards are not. They believe that their intellect is sovereign. And anyone of faith is at base non-intellectual and at worst mentally ill. This is narcissism and it leads to relativism. That is, they become their own God. I've started reading a blog by a millennial, Chris Martin. It's called Millennial Evangelical Blog. And he wrote this. This is a really great little blog called Sex, God, and a Generation That Can't Tell the Difference. And basically, in this little blog, he talks about a research that's done that millennials are called the don't judge generation when it comes to morality. But Chris Martin is a millennial. 
And he says that this isn't true, that millennials are just as judgmental as the older generation. And what he says is this. Millennials seem reluctant to make black and white moral pronouncements upon complex issues. Millennials don't just keep from making black and white statements about themselves. They think it's morally reprehensible for anyone to make a black and white moral pronouncement on issues. So this is uh, Chris Martin's conclusion. The only thing that millennials are black and white on when it comes to morality is that they aren't allowed or you aren't allowed to be black and white on morality. You see, the sexually moral used to judge the sexually amoral, and now the amoral judges the moral. Churches that listen to the world's voice for guidance are apt to change not only their messaging, but their message. Since the majority of people don't believe in absolute truth, it's a death wish to mention it. Therefore, you cannot believe what the Bible says. Another subcategory of narcissism is consumerism. And one of the consequences of consumerism is that we approach churches like customers. And we view the church as a spiritual goods and service provider. And when that particular church is not meeting your standards of spiritual goods and services, then they will go to another church that will. So, instead of being sinners in need of grace, consumerism changes us into customers, and God becomes our servant. The message of the cross is simple. There's bad news, and there's good news. The bad news is that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we will all face an unfulfilled life here and now and a hopeless and helpless eternity. Well, the good news is that the love and grace of God gives us more life, abundant life, and a secure eternity. You see, we're not in the business of begging people to join our religious club. But we do beg you to come to Christ who can change your life. Our new president of the Southern Baptist Convention wrote a book several years ago, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Here are some of his quotes and his reasoning. If there were a world record for the number of times of asking Jesus in your heart, I'm pretty sure I would hold it. I've probably prayed the prayer more than 5,000 times. 
Every time I was sincere, but I was never quite sure if I got it right. Had I really been sorry enough for my sin that time around? Some wept tears when they got saved, but I didn't have any. So was I really sorry? Did I really get grace? So I would pray the sinner's prayer again and again and again and maybe get baptized again. Every student camp, every spring revival, and I love this, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. (laughs) I used to think that I was alone with this, that I was just neurotic. But when I began to talk about this, I would have such a slew of people to tell me that they had the same experience that I concluded the problem was epidemic. Many believe that countless people in our churches today are genuinely saved, but they just don't seem to gain the insurance of salvation. But Greer says the opposite is true. Because of some childhood prayers, tens of thousands of people are absolutely certain of a salvation that they don't possess because there is no evidence in their lives that they got it. Fifty percent of the people in the U.S., according to surveys, have prayed the sinner's prayer and they think they're going to heaven just because they prayed the prayer without any difference in their lifestyles from those outside the church. If this is the most important decision that a person will ever make, don't you think that we as a church ought to be clear about it? He goes on to say the sinner's prayer is not wrong in itself. After all, salvation is essentially a cry for mercy to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer. But what's happened is the sinner's prayer has become a ritual we go through without considering what it really means. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus is Lord and that he has made an end to the power of sin over us. And we are saved by submitting to those two truths. That's called repentance and faith. We struggle with that nature for the rest of our lives. But here's the good news. The Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in every true believer battles for our minds. He battles for our hearts until it becomes more and more real. And through time, the Holy Spirit wins. And while we will never be totally absent of me-centeredness, we become more and more Christ-centered. So it is to that end that we preach Christ and Him crucified. And whatever transformation takes place in the life of a follower of Christ, it is all because of His 
amazing grace. And so I stand before you today. This is the introduction to the answer to our culture. I repeat, we become what we focus on. And the scriptures tell us over and over again to keep our eyes on Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And then he does the changing. Have you simply been a part of church? Under emotional circumstances, you made a decision, you prayed the prayer, you rinsed and repeated. Or do you happen to see that the Holy Spirit is changing your life as evidence that that prayer was real? Would you pray with me? Father, you have called us to be sought in light. And yet we're so tempted to draw in from culture the darkness and the brokenness. Father, would you give us that grace that we need, that amazing grace that shows us the love of God in Christ that shows us that we are helpless in our sin and that only by your grace can we be set free. The chains are broken. Father, I pray that you would call many to Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen.